0: And thanks for listening and uh, as has been said already my name is Harrison Ford the associate pastor here now uh, and it's a pleasure as always to be here and um, I want to actually start off by saying this uh, both on myself on behalf of myself and Brittany and the kids uh, we really are it, it's such a pleasure and an honor uh, for me to be here and to serve as your associate pastor. It's a real thrill for us. And I know that um, the move from assistant to associate, it might seem uh, like just a formality, or it might seem like just a weird bit of Presbyterian polity. But it's important for us because, as Robert alluded to, it it really is, um, it's come out of a decision that we've made to look and say that this is the place that we want to be. This is the place, as long as God has us here and as long as you'll have me here, this is the place where we hope to be long-term. And the reason that we came to this decision is because we love it here, simply put. Or even better yet, we love you, City Church. I'm sorry if this sounds too much like a DTR (laughs) That's, that's happening right now. Um... But We love this congregation. We love each and every one of you. And you know, over the the years, there have been so many things that have knit my heart to yours. Um, I think think one of those things is just I have witnessed so much generosity and kindness from you towards not only me, but to Brittany and to our children. Um, Another thing is I have, you know, over the course of being here seven years— I have been able to see, both in your own personal lives and our corporate life, God profoundly at work, and that's so fun for me to get to watch. Another thing is that, you know, I have seen you be so kind and generous towards me in my weaknesses, which are many, and for that I'm deeply grateful But over the past year, as I've been, as Robert alluded to, in this kind of season of vocational discernment, one powerful thing, that one powerful realization I had was that I think the thing that has most bound my heart to yours is worshiping together. Whenever I think about how much I love this church, whenever I talk with people about how much I, I love this church, it's hard for me to not envision us in here together and if anything these past two Sundays have only served as a further confirmation of that for me coming together coming together two Sundays ago and grieving and lamenting over the shooting in Nashville and then coming together the next week and talking back on Easter Sunday and talking back to that grief and lament with the hope and joy of the resurrection those are powerful, hallmark Sundays for me. And, you know, both of those are reminders that, to me, that what we, though what we do here on a Sunday may seem commonplace or ordinary, we come together, we read the Word, we pray, we take the sacraments. Though that may seem trivial or ordinary, through those ordinary means, God does something truly extraordinary. And that's what I want to talk about today. So we are now done with our sermon series in Exodus, and in a month we're going to move into a new sermon series uh, going back to the Gospel of Luke. So in the meantime, we're going to do a short sermon series on the topic of worship. And I want to kick us off today by talking about how worship is extraordinarily ordinary. Worship is extraordinarily ordinary. So to consider this i want to ask you to open your bibles or your worship guides and look with me at ephesians 1 verses 11 to 23. ephesians 1 verses 11 to 23. in him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will so that we who were the first to hope in christ might be to the praise of his glory in him you also when you heard the word of truth the gospel of your salvation and believed in him were sealed with the promised holy spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory for this reason because i've heard of your faith in the lord jesus and your love toward all the saints i do not cease to give thanks for you remembering you in my prayers "...that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead, and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is to be named, not only in this age, but also in the one that is to come. And he put all things under his feet, and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be found pleasing and acceptable to you, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. Well, this afternoon, I want us to consider what I just said, that worship is extraordinarily ordinary. And so to begin, let's consider what is extraordinary about worship. And to start off, I actually want to kick this back to you um, for you, what makes worship extraordinary? Now, there's a lot of people in here, so we're probably all going to have some different opinions. Maybe for some of you, it's uh, the music. Maybe for some of you, it's the liturgy. Maybe for some, it's the, the atmosphere or the aesthetic of the space. Maybe it's the preaching. Maybe it's even the people in the pew beside you. What makes worship Extraordinary for you. Now, I want to suggest that all of those things are certainly important, but they are not the thing that truly makes worship extraordinary. In today's passage, something has moved Paul to worship. He gets three verses in before he breaks out into praise. Verse 3 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Something has so captured Paul's imagination, something so extraordinary that he can't help but burst out in praise. And he continues this through this chapter, verse 5, to the praise of his glorious grace. Verse 12, to the praise of his glory. Verse 14, to the praise of his glory. And you can probably see a, a pattern emerging here. It is the glory of God that motivates Paul to worship. What is glory? Well, I love the way that J.I. Packer has summarized it. He says that glory means deity in manifestation. Glory means deity in manifestation. In other words, glory is an encounter with or an apprehension of the personal presence of the living God. That's what glory is. It's what Moses encountered in the burning bush when we saw it earlier this year. It's what the Israelites saw when uh, they were led by the the, the cloud by day and the burning uh, pillar by night. It's what filled the holy of holies. It's what Isaiah saw in his vision when he said, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up. That was the glory of God. But most importantly, glory is what we have seen in Jesus Christ, about whom John writes, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory. It is the glory of God manifested in the incarnate Christ that drove Paul to worship. And I want to suggest that the same should be true for you and I as well. But I want to suggest that there is an attendant reality that motivates Paul to worship here. It's not just who this glorious God is, but it's what this glorious God has done. In other words, Paul is motivated to worship in appreciation of the glory of the gospel. And we see here that Paul really hones in on two different aspects of the gospel. The first is this, that God has chosen for himself a new covenant community, a new special people, the church, you and me, to whom he is going to give an inheritance of eternal life and eternal fellowship with him. But there's a second aspects of the gospel that Paul focuses on and it's that God has given us this inheritance by uniting us to his son that's what Paul is getting at in this passage with all the in him and in Christ language that you see God has mystically united us to his son such that we participate in that we share in his sonship Jesus, as the Son of God, is the rightful inheritor of of all of God's blessing and fellowship and glory. And yet, because we've been united to Him truly and mystically, we are now rightful inheritors of that same presence and fellowship and love and glory. Because it's Christ and we're united to Him, it is now ours. That is what has driven Paul to worship. Now, what does this have to do with worship on a broader scale? Well, I want to suggest that at its essence, worship is communion with the living God. Worship is communion with the living God. It's coming into the glorious presence of the Heavenly Father, receiving His grace and love, and then returning that to Him in praise and worship. It's accessing now, in part, the inheritance that we will receive in full when Christ returns. That's what worship is. And here's why that's important. If it's the music, or if it's the liturgy, or the preaching, or the aesthetics that make worship extraordinary for you, you're always going to be chasing the next best thing. You're going to live your life trying to find a better band, a better preacher, a better church, a better liturgy that is going to make you feel something like you're actually coming into the presence of God. And friends, I can promise you that that will eventually leave you burnt out and spiritually dry. Because at the end of the day, the problem with that is that what makes worship extraordinary is up to you. Have you found the right church? Have you found the right music to listen to? Have you found the right liturgy to participate in? Have you found the right preacher to listen to? Have you done all the things that you need to do to work yourself into a worshipful state? Friends, that is no way to live with God. And I can promise you that if that is what's going on, you, you, can, you can do that game for a while. But it's going to catch up for you, with you and it's going to leave you spiritually spent and disillusioned. And I can say that because I have been there. That was high school for me. I was always chasing the next best thing. I was always looking for something more flashy in worship. And so by the time I got to college, I was, I was utterly disillusioned and burnt out. But there were two things that saved me from that. The first was the campus ministry, RUF, and my campus minister, Les Newsom, And the second was this little church called College Hill Presbyterian. You know, College Hill was the opposite of everything that I was looking for in high school. It was a small, rural church. That church building was built in 1844, and it felt like nothing had changed since then. It felt like some of the people in there were, had probably been there since 1844 as well. Nothing had changed. They didn't have an AV system because the music was just uh, old, old, old hymns sung on piano and vocals. Their, um, the liturgy was pretty much the same every Sunday. Without fail, we'd confess the Apostles' Creed. We'd pray the Lord's Prayer. We'd sing the doxology. We'd probably recite a part of the Shorter Catechism. There were no small groups, there were no slick events, there was just a quarterly potluck after the service, I can tell you though, that was the culinary event of North Mississippi (laughs) whenever that would happen. You've never had better fried chicken. Remembering our time there, a friend of mine wrote this about the pastor, his name was Alan Cochet. Alan wore ceremonial robes during worship, and he always brought a handful to a half dozen books with him up to the pulpit when he preached. And I can see him shuffling up to the front for his sermons, which were more like leisurely strolls through some imaginary scripture garden, stopping to admire and comment extemporaneously upon some doctrinal flower that he noticed along the way. I'm getting choked up because that, uh, that man and those ambling, slow sermons that he gave so powerfully affected me and it made me the man that you see today. It was not the dynamic, emotionally charged worship experience that I had chased in high school. But as that same friend wrote about worship there, services were old but alive. And there's no better way to describe it because those services were alive with the very glory and presence of God himself. That was the heartbeat. That was the burning center of that worship service. And so what might have seemed to others to be plain and ordinary and outdated was, at least for me, electric and extraordinary. After I went to seminary, I, I learned what this type of church is called. It's, it's In Presbyterian parlance, it's called an ordinary means church. And that, that phrase comes from the Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 88, which you'll see in the reflection part of your worship guide. It says this, The outward and ordinary means whereby Christ communicates to us the benefits of redemption are his ordinances, especially the word, sacraments, and prayer. Word, sacraments, and prayer, that is what the catechism says are the things that are going to help us more and more take hold of the great salvation, the inheritance that God has given us in Jesus Christ. this is what paul is talking about in the passage today in verses 17 and 18 when he prays that god through the holy spirit would enlighten the ephesians hearts through god's revelation think about it this way if you have children in here um, if you have children they have your heart right they have your love they have immediate and full access to it at all times and yet despite that you are going to set up routines and rhythms and habits in your family life that make sure that your children feel that love that they have for them. Maybe it's taking your children uh, to get ice cream after they've had a hard day at school. Maybe it is um, maybe it's taking them on a special trip for their 10th birthday. I can certainly advise you to not do what we did and take them to Great Wolf Lodge. <laughs> Um, I am still emotionally, spiritually, and financially scarred from that experience. <laughs> I think there are still some germs floating around in my system from those pools. So, so friends, God's grace is immediately accessible to us when we're united to Christ. But God uses the means of word prayer and the sacraments to help us grow in our understanding of, in our experience of, that love and grace. So why is it the catechism hones in on these three? Well, I think of two answers. First, the catechism is simply summarizing what's taught throughout scripture. Throughout the Bible, we see that communing with God is what worship is, and the way that uh, the way that people, the people of God commune with him is through word, prayer, and sacrament. Probably the most succinct example of this we find is in Acts 2, which describes the practices of the very early church, and it says this, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. I want to suggest that we see it all here. The apostles' teaching, that's the ministry of the word, The breaking of bread, that's the way that Luke will often describe the Lord's Supper. The prayers, that's obvious. And then the fellowship, the koinonia, that's the word that Luke often uses to describe gathered worship of believers. So, we center word, prayer, and the sacraments because we find that that's what Scripture centers in communion with God. Not even just in the New Testament, in the Old Testament as well. In the old testament in the ministry of christ in the um, early church that's what we see but second we also center word prayer and sacraments because they are the places in which god has promised to be spiritually present with us now remember um, if it's the case that the that the heart of the christian life and the heart of christian worship is communion with god then it would necessarily follow that the means through which God is going to deepen that communion with his people are things that bring his people into his personal presence. And that's precisely what we find scripture saying happens when we engage word, prayer, and the sacraments. We come into the presence of God. When we read scripture, it's not like we're reading Shakespeare, who's long dead, and his words... Or, uh, just a memory of what has gone past no we we see here that as the author of Hebrews puts it God's word is alive and active Shakespeare's dead his words are just an echo of his presence throughout history but Jesus is alive and seated at the right hand of God the Father And so when we read his word, it is his eternal word, him speaking presently to us. So if scripture is God speaking to us, well, prayer is the means through which we then speak back to God. And prayer isn't just like uh, putting a note in a bottle and throwing it out to sea, hoping that someone finds it. No, we find all throughout scripture that God hears our prayers. We've seen this all throughout uh, our study of Exodus. The, The Israelites would call out to God in the midst of their oppression, and it says that God heard their cries. Peter picks up with this in the New Testament. He says, For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. We actually see this probably most poignantly in the life of Jesus. Jesus frequently draws away from the crowds to pray and to commune with the Father. And we see this, uh, and because we're united to him, we share in that very same access that he has when he's in prayer. And we see this show up in in John 17, in Jesus' high priestly prayer. He says this, Father, I desire that they also, whom you've given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you've given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. I may known to them your name, and I'll continue to make it known that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. So prayer brings us into the presence of God as we share our concerns and our praise to him. And then finally, the sacraments also usher us into Christ's presence. And baptized, we are baptized into Christ as a sign and seal of our union with him. And the same thing is true for the Lord's Supper. As we partake of the elements of faith, as we partake of the elements in faith, we are brought into the very presence of Jesus. In John 6, Jesus says, Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. Paul expounds upon this in 1 Corinthians 10 when he says, The cup of blessing that we bless is not the cup fellowship with the blood of Christ, fellowship there being the word koinonia that we just talked about back in Acts 2. The bread which we break is not the bread fellowship koinonia with the body of Christ. So word, prayer, and sacraments, these are the ordinary means that God uses to do something extraordinary help us commune with him and you know in light of the worship arms race that's happening uh, in the evangelical church in the west in which each church tries to offer a more dynamic relevant emotionally charged service in the other these means of grace can seem not only ordinary but naive and simple Word, prayer, and sacrament, is that it? Do you really think that that is all it takes for people to change, for people to grow in their walk with Christ? I do. And I hope that I've convinced you of the same. I hope that I've convinced you that God has promised us that extraordinary worship doesn't come from us being extraordinary or from us doing something extraordinary but rather extraordinary worship comes when the extraordinary happens by god indwelling his means of grace and coming to us and filling us with his presence and showing us his glory that's what makes worship extraordinary now in conclusion i I realize that it's weird to give a stump speech after you've been elected but that's kind of what the sermon is um, you see, there are many competing visions out there as to what exactly a, a pastor should be, or what a pastor should do. There are some who think that a pastor is primarily an organizational leader. It's kind of pastor as the C-suite executive. There are some who think that the pastor's role is to just give inspiring speeches. This is the pastor as the TED Talk presenter. There's some who think that the pastor's role is to just help you be the best person that you can be in this life. This is the pastor as the therapist or the pastor as the life coach. And no doubt, there's some element of all of that to the pastoral calling. But the most important and fundamental task that I have as a pastor and that Eric has as a pastor is to administer you the means of grace. And City Church, is as your associate pastor, I promise you that this is what I'm going to keep at the very center of my pastoral calling. And I'm going to do that because I believe that when we engage the word, that we ingra- when we engage prayer, when we engage the sacraments, we meet with the living God. And that is the deepest desire you have in life and the deepest need you have. Would you pray with me? Our Father, we thank you that you have given us these ordinary means and that through them you do something truly extraordinary. That you, the living God, the creator of all things, all power, all all powerful, all knowing, all seeing, omnipresent, that we sinful people can not only come into your presence, but come in and be loved and embraced. There's nothing more extraordinary than that, Father. And so we thank you for the gift of the gospel. And we thank you for the gift of your means of grace, word, prayer, and sacrament, that whenever we come to those, we know that you come to us. Father, would you help me to keep that, to stay true to that calling, to keep that at the center of my pastoral vocation? And would you help my friends here to engage them that may they might come into your presence I ask this all in the name of your son amen